Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Vital Spark, a Spark biomedical podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And folks, thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the show as we continue to throw our company's weight behind solving the world's addiction crisis, understanding some cutting-edge treatment methods and technologies, and the professionals behind them. We're really looking forward to bringing you some more concrete thought leadership on this topic. Before we do so, I want to make sure you're all caught up on our previous conversations. We've got another uh, great podcast we did before this one. I want to make sure you're tapped into. So head to our website at sparkbiomedical.com. Again, sparkbiomedical.com. And make sure you're subscribing to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just look up Vital Spark, hit that subscribe button, and you'll have a full catalog of previous conversations plus notifications when we drop new ones. So team, let's go ahead and jump in. Uh, the title of of our episode today is this is your brain on electricity, right? Our audience of clinicians probably remembers the uh, this is your brain on drugs campaign, classic fried egg commercial. I know I remembered it during a elementary school dare campaigns, right? And today's episode is definitely not trying to scare you out of anything. The opposite, actually, we're going to be evangelizing something and providing you with a lot of solutions. But just like the ad, we are going to be talking about the relationship between the brain drugs, addiction, and we're going to be bringing neurostimulation into the conversation today. We'll get in the weeds, but we'll keep it accessible. So this is your brain on electricity. We're going to be making the case today for how and why a very specific kind of neurostimulation, more specifically transcutaneous auricular neurostimulation, is making important strides in improving opioid withdrawal uh, alleviation treatment and methods. Uh, with our guest today, we're going to be breaking down why we think clinicians should really consider this as an essential part of their tool belt of treatment methods. Uh, and then we're going to break down the science behind neurostimulation, some of the innovations in using this therapy method, and the impact on staff and patients alike. So I'd like to go ahead and welcome our guest for the day. Joining us from the Spark Biomedical team is one of the three co-founders and chief science officer, Dr. Naveed Kadaparist. Dr. Naveed, great to have you on. How are you doing? Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah, real pleasure getting to source your insights. And you know, we had a great conversation with your colleague, another Dan in the house. Right? Another Dan, correct. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, you know, we really got to tap into the ethos of the company, how how you as a company and as a team see the work you're doing. And what I think today is really going to help do is intersect how that manifests in practice, right, in the science itself and in evolving and expanding the treatment tool belt for clinicians. So I want to start with, I guess, painting that wider picture. So if you could, for our audience today, what are some of the typical treatment methods that we typically see in the industry today to alleviate withdrawals? You know, just give us that high-level overview and intersect a few touch points of what you think works well and maybe what's missing, right? What could be improved? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, there's there's several treatment options that patients have today, Yeah. right? Most of them are uh, FDA-approved. Some of them are not. Some of them use off-label. But for the most part, there are different categories of FDA-approved product or opioid agonist-type medications. So these are, so if we're talking specifically about opioid use disorder, these are the medications that they would use to help patients that are experiencing withdrawal or uh, treat their addiction. These opioid agonist medications are as they sound. They're an opioid, and they bind to your opioid receptors in the brain, mm. and they can relieve your symptoms associated with withdrawal, and sometimes they can be relieving the systems with cravings. These are medications known as methadone, Methadone is an opioid agonist. And then there are also medications that are 
partial agonists, meaning that these are, they have an opioid agonist to them and an antagonist. So they can bind to the receptor, uh, but more importantly, they provide relief. This is buprenorphine uh, and suboxone. Okay. On the other side of the picture, there are medications that are also FDA approved that are antagonists. So okay. their job is to block the opioid receptor. This, this medication is Vivitrol. It's widely used and very well accepted. Okay. However, when you're on Vivitrol, you cannot have an opioid on board. So if you're experiencing withdrawal symptoms, you have to go through acute detox before you can receive Vivitrol, which is usually around 7 to 10 days. This is the landscape that we live in currently. So most patients that uh, undergo opioid withdrawal treatment or want to go through long-term addiction management, they will be on one of these medications for not just months, sometimes uh, can be years. Now, why do we see medication being the core response or you know, a withdrawal treatment of choice? Is there a, a specific motivator there? Is there a legacy of using medication over other kinds of therapy or treatment methods? What's the context there? I think there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, you know, it's also how physicians are trained. So pharma definitely has provided excellent opportunities for their physicians to use these treatment modalities to help their patients, yeah. and they've been trained to them. Neurostimulation has also been around for a long time, but it's starting to gain traction in other indications, other diseases that have been able to show safe and effective therapies for these patients. Love that. Well, you brought up neurostimulation. Let's go ahead and intersect that now for uh, the podcast. As we think of neurostimulation as a treatment method for withdrawals, I think it's also important to just reemphasize the science behind this. So let's get a recap for our audience. One of the biggest challenges to solving the opioid addiction crisis is finding solutions to how opioids hijack the brain's reward system. So I want to, you know, our audience is probably pretty familiar with this, but just give a quick refresher here. Let's start with what is brain reward, right? Both, uh, I guess at a high, more figurative level, and then more in the material science, and what makes it so critical for daily functioning? Uh, so, you know, I, I always think of reward as uh, a, just an instinct that you have, right? That gives you some sort of pleasure and motivation. But the more I thought about it as I started diving into the addiction space, reward is a survival function, mm. right? So if I were to ask you and say, what are two uh, survival functions that your brain performs? Mm, top, eating, maybe, yeah. I don't know. Top two actually come up are cardiac, keeping your heart going. Okay, fair, yep. And respiration. Oh, that, that, right? that, that's straightforward, yeah. Breathing, <laughs> yeah, breathing. Yeah. And, and these are involuntary functions right. that are survival functions for right. you to keep you alive. Most people don't consider reward a survival function. Hmm. And let me give you an example of why it is. You actually yeah. mentioned it earlier. So when you consider reward in relation to eating and having sex, hmm. the two reasons why you have to have you eat right. is what? To stay alive. Right. Right. Yeah. Keep your body alive, keep it full of nutrients, and you can continue on. Right. Uh, in terms of sex and procreation, right. this is extremely important for our species right. to be able to stay alive. And so the, the system of reward, the function of reward in your brain is a survival function. Mm. And it is primarily driven by one specific neurochemical called dopamine, right? right? Most people know this as the pleasure hormone. Right. And however, it is a very vital hormone and neurochemical in the brain. 
it does provide us the ability to understand that when you eat something, you should do it again. Mm. You get rewarded for it. You、right? get rewarded for it exactly. But not only that, it can reward you for the motivation. So if I show you an image of something that looks edible or something that you may like, you know, a lot of examples: chocolate, food,、right. fried chicken. Oh hell yeah! Whatever yeah, it may it. be, right? <laughs> yeah. Your brain is going to give you a little bit of dopamine and say, "You should probably go eat that. You're getting hungry. Maybe you should go eat that." And then when you eat it, you get a sense of、uh, fullness, right? Satiety, as they call it, fulfillment, right? Fulfillment,、ah, right? I feel better. I achieved my mission. Yeah. And then you have less dopamine, and you continue on. But then, as the cycle continues, you will go and seek for it again. Interesting. So then, what is the role then that dopamine plays? I guess in the brain's Chemical balance and, and ecosystem, and how do opioids disrupt that flow? Right. So obviously, we're talking about how dopamine works in a normal brain, right?、Sure. A healthy brain. As you start introducing substances of abuse, right?、And、for this topic, for this conversation, we're mostly focusing on opioids. Yeah.、Uh, as you introduce an opioid to the equation, well, an opioid will, can go and bind. And bind directly to an opioid receptor in the brain,、mm. and the consequence of that binding to an opioid receptor is that it releases dopamine, right?、Mm. So as you start taking in opioids from your world, they、right. call it exogenous opioids.、Uh, you're taking it from outside of your body and putting、mm. it inside your body. Well, now you're supplanting the need of dopamine. Essentially, you are going to create your own dopamine surges.、Mm. So they call this、uh, hijacking in some ways, opioid hijacking. And as you begin to take an opioid for longer periods of time, your brain can become dependent onto those onto the opioid. And so it was interesting. There was a thought process that as you would take opioids, you would just get more and more dopamine. Sure. It's actually quite the opposite. So even though you do get pleasure as you take an opioid, you have euphoria in the beginning stages. Yeah. As you con- as you continue to take them for longer periods of time, your brain will start will stop producing as much op-、uh, dopamine. It'll actually pull back on those dopamine receptors, and this is a classic term. Everybody's heard this term, and this is tolerance. Right, right.、Well, your tolerance goes up. Goes up. So you got to take more. So you have to take more.、Right. And what's unfortunate about this is for people that suffer from addiction, you do build more tolerance,、mm. but the issue is at some point. You're gonna. There's not enough of a drug or a substance of abuse that you can take for you to actually get pleasure anymore. So then you're taking these substances primarily to to function and to stay alive. Right. Right. Because they're no longer reaching new peaks for you. They're just filling this cavern of、uh, the basic foundation of what you need to even get through the day. That's exactly right. 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 And I mean. <laughs> Obviously, that creates massive issues, and、uh, you know we talked about the trends in opioid addiction in our last episode with Dan. But I guess just as a quick refresher, though, I do recommend everyone go watch that episode. It was, you know, I, I don't remember the number, but there was a sharp increase in not only addiction but also addiction-related deaths during the pandemic. And so you see, you know, not only addiction patients struggling with their issues, but A lot of the natural kind of surges of dopamine that you get out of basic lifestyle of living in a society of being inter- and interacting with your community, you pull all those away too, and、right. you get the double compound issue. You know, is that something that you 
you know, heard from uh, clinicians that you work with or from the, the medical side of the industry, uh, the more technical granular side of it? Absolutely. You know, the, the pandemic has definitely caused a massive surge in our opioid epidemic. Yeah. Right. I remember when we first started Spark Biomedical just over three years ago, you know, we were talking about overdose rates in the 40, 50, 60,000. Right. Now we're at 90 and then now it's 100,000 that they report in terms of and it's not just opioids. It's this is all substances right. that lead to overdose. But it's the underpinnings of addiction are not surprising. It's depression. It's yeah. PTSD. It's anxiety. And when you put people in a stressful situation, such as a pandemic, and they lose jobs, and their families are distraught, these symptoms begin to arise, and they begin to self-medicate. Yeah. And when you self-medicate, unfortunately, it can get to a place where it's kind of, you can't return. You're, you're kind of in a, in a dark place. Right. Because, you know, of that science layer of you start to raise the tolerance, you start to clock out what sort of natural dopamine your body can even produce and, and intake. So you start to become even more dependent, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Yeah. So then how does the science behind addiction and specifically opioid addiction, how does this impact some of the treatment methods that you see in the field today? Are they specifically trying to respond to that science behind it? Are there other layers of addiction that they're trying to treat or address? Give us that context. Right. So most of the addiction treatments out there specifically that are pharmacological is the ones I mentioned are buprenorphine, Suboxone, sure. and methadone. These are in the category of substitution treatments. So the idea is, if this is a, a, an example, uh, if you have someone that is addicted to heroin, they come into an uh, inpatient treatment facility to, be, to go through the detoxification uh, procedures. And they will start them on one of these medications. Okay. And so you can, you're t- essentially taking away, taking away a narcotic, an illegal narcotic, and you're substituting it for a prescriptive medication that a physician can control. Sure. They're very effective, but it is a substitution, right? You are mm-hmm. eliminating one and replacing it with another. So there is that type of treatment. It is successful, and we have saved a lot of lives with these medications. On the other side of the equation, with Vivitrol, Again, it blocks receptors. Yeah. And this is more of a sober living type of application. So you've decided, I do not want to have an opioid anymore. And so I will undergo the tough withdrawal process. Just more of a cold turkey process. It is. They do provide you medications. They're just not opioid-based medications. Sure. So there is, they call it comfort medication protocols. And it does help patients get to their finish line, but not as many can get there because it is difficult you are going to have to, unfortunately, suffer through some of the withdrawal symptoms right. before you can get on the Vivitrol. This is something that Spark really focused on from the very beginning. Right. So then how do those dynamics, maybe some of the, the double edges of the, uh, the medication treatment sword, what challenges does this pose for our audience, for, for clinicians out there, right? Like how, how does having to maneuver the realities of the positives as well as some of the downsides of that treatment method impact their day-to-day, how many times they have to see these patients, the relationship between patients, et cetera? Well, it just depends. You know, it's different from every patient to every patient. You know, I'm not a clinician, uh, but I do speak to many physicians about this topic. Yeah. And it's not easy. The physicians do wish they had another tool in their toolbox, right? For example, for patients that want to get on the Vivitrol, Right. It's not easy. And so having a non-opioid solution that can reduce your withdrawal 
and have easier transition on the Vivitrol is very is, is highly desirable by most clinicians. Yeah. Uh, in addition to that, Suboxone works fantastic, but at some point, patients will need to come off of it. Right. It can ha- it can lead to other uh, physiological issues, constipation. There's a, there's, a, there's a lot of other issues that they can have from it, cardiac right. issues. So if a patient does want to come off Suboxone, which is an opioid, unfortunately, they will experience withdrawal. And that's where we think neurostimulation plays a fantastic role in being able to help patients get to a medication or to get patients off of a medication. Right. Right. Something that doesn't just act as a substitution, but that mm, uh, alleviates the transition away from the opioid. Right. So let's go ahead and bring in this neurostimulation treatment into the conversation. Again, transcutaneous auricular neurostimulation. How does TAN therapy compare to other treatment methods used in the field, right? The the agonist and the antagonist opioid-based treatments that you just mentioned, give us sort of a compare and contrast. Right, so the way that we try to understand how our products work, right, is it's actually based on a lot of science before us. Mm. There's been several studies that have come out that have shown how neurostimulation, different forms of it, right, some invasive, some non-invasive, sure. but talking specifically about just peripheral nerve stimulation, stimulating a nerve on your body, right? Right. There's studies that have shown that if you can stimulate these nerves, you can release what are called endogenous opioids. Mm. So this is your body's natural opioid. Okay. And most people know this as endorphins, right? Yeah. Endorphins can bind to your opioid receptors, and it's primarily been known to helping with pain. Uh, in this scenario, we're using it for the other for the other issue, which is withdrawal symptoms. Interesting. So, tan therapy specifically has it's it's precision targeted therapy in okay. some ways because we are targeting two specific cranial nerves, uh, and these are two nerves that are extremely well studied. One is the vagus nerve, and then the other one is the trigeminal nerve. Where are those on the body? Uh, so, the vagus nerve. If you're talking about the actual nerve itself, it's in your neck, you have two of them, and they're right next to your carotid arteries. Okay. Right? The trigeminal nerve is primarily on your face, and okay. it kind of wraps around and goes in front of your ears and tucks around by your jaw. Interesting. And so these two nerves are cranial nerves. You have 12 of them. So they're very uh, well integrated into your, your nervous system. But we have the ability to target both of them at the same time through your ear. Okay. So our earpiece, uh, Dan may have mentioned this uh, on his podcast or yeah. his on his interview with you, but nonetheless, we essentially have an earpiece that sticks to your skin, which is what transcutaneous means. Gotcha. Uh, delivers electricity to the skin, and it it goes it stimulates on and around your ear, activating both a branch of the trigeminal and the vagus. Mm. And so, if when you activate these nerves, our theory, and we're testing this hypothesis out currently is that as you stimulate both of these nerves, it releases endogenous opioids or endorphins and, and fills those opiate receptors. So for a patient that is coming off of heroin and they're about to experience withdrawal, these withdrawal symptoms start to present within 6 to 12 hours after their last dose. Mm. And so we intervene and we provide neurostimulation to fill those receptors and reduce the amount of withdrawal. Does the body notice a difference between filling uh, those opioid receptors with dopamine versus endorphins? How do those compare? It's quite. It's actually a little bit different. Okay. So when you release endorphins and they bind to an opioid receptor, mm-hmm. 
the subsequent release is dopamine. I see. Okay. Right. Gotcha. So then basically what you're doing is you're providing a natural solution to that urge to fill this dopamine tolerance that you've built up through your opioid addiction. Uh, now, how do you see that coupling with some of the medication and the longer journey of leveling someone back off of that addiction they've built and that tolerance they've built? Right. So, you know, we've, we've really started focusing, or at least in our first studies, that we focused on how to help patients during acute detox. Okay. Right? Sure. Getting a patient through that horrible barrier before they can get through, uh, get on to their uh, addiction treatment. Uh, so five to seven days, we've shown success in that. You know, we've been able to help patients mitigate withdrawal, reduce withdrawal, mm. and then move on into long-term addiction treatment. We have just received uh, an NIH-funded study through the through the through the NIH, uh, specifically NIDA and the Heal Initiative. Okay, it's a two-year study that we're very passionate about because it allows for us to determine uh, not only how we can help patients in acute detox, hmm. but then to your point, how do we help patients in long-term addiction? Right, uh, helping with cravings helping with some of the depression, the anxiety, the PTSD, helping with protracted withdrawal, mm. um, and also helping patients uh, prevent relapse, yeah. which is a, you know, relapse is one of the biggest and highly correlative uh, number to uh, overdose. So then in that long-term path then, I guess what are some of the strategies that clinicians use now to avoid relapse? And how do they weigh, you know, some of the factors of, is trying to prevent patients of getting addicted or dependent on just a new treatment or a new substance, right? Mm -hmm. How do you balance that with your earpiece and the, the endorphins and the dopamine that it naturally provides your system? Right. So we're just another tool in the toolbox, right? right? We're definitely not trying to be a primary treatment okay. uh, for our patients and for the physicians to use. We look at it as uh, if you have patients that are difficult to treat, there are, you know, fentanyl has been being pushed out everywhere now, and it has made treating patients more difficult. It's so there are more difficult cases because of this, and we believe that our device is another tool that can help physicians treat those more difficult patients. Mm -hmm. It can also be used for patients that just don't want to have any medications. They just, enough is enough. I don't want to be on an opioid. I don't care if it's illegal or prescriptive. Right. I just want a natural approach to this that's safe and effective. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that matters a lot, too. I mean, the the psychological element of saying, you know, I'm trying to overcome this. Right. And it's like, well, here's another pill. Right. It's almost like, ah, triggering to some degree, right? So, yeah, I, I could see uh, I could see that being very valuable in those kinds of treatment scenarios. And present some other options. We've been just kind of casually talking about treating addiction and uh, helping uh, patients just kind of at large. Now, what about when we compare adult patients versus babies, children, right? Um, children that are born addicted to opioids secondhand, basically. Is there a, a different strategy there? Have you developed the product differently for those two different demographics? Right. Yeah. So that's that's something that we're very very passionate about at Spark uh, is helping babies that are born and suffering from neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome, right? Or NOWS. And so NOWS is uh, as the opioid epidemic gets worse and worse due to the pandemic, it is natural that we see higher numbers in NOWS. 
And so we've, we've had very good success in terms of running a clinical trial that we uh, conducted at the Medical University of South Carolina. Yeah. It was a very small trial, but it was, uh, it was effective, uh, showing that our device, which we shrunk down, yeah. it's the exact same system. We just shrunk the earpiece down Love to it. fit a baby's ear. Right? Easy enough. Super yeah. simple. Yeah. The exact same stimulation parameters. Mm. You know, the intensity was a little bit less because they're babies sure. and infants. But nonetheless, the approach was a little bit different than in our adults. Adults, we just deliver it and they can use it as they need it right. to help with the symptoms. With neonates, uh, infants suffering from nows, their primary treatment is morphine to help reduce them. So again, it's opioid substitution. And what and it's very effective. However, though, the national average is roughly around 23 days in the NICU. And some of the NICU stays, depending on the studies you see, can be up to 40 or 45 days. Right. It's extremely expensive and costly to treat this, this patient, this infant. And so the way that we've used neurostimulation for nows is by looking at how do we replace morphine. Uh, not that we stop morphine treatment. It's, morphine is given on a schedule. And what we do is we deliver a short session, roughly about 30 minutes of neurostimulation, mm. and right before the morphine dose. And what we saw was babies were calming down. Nice. Babies weren't crying as much. Their withdrawal symptoms were much less. And we were able to reduce the amount of morphine, or at least in our study, showed that that national average is 23 days. Our study was nine days on average. Wow. That's just, a considerable cut. It's a considerable amount, yes. Yeah. And that's something to hang your hat on, that's for sure. It uh, is. We're very proud of that. Yeah. And, and we continue to uh, expand on that science to be able to help babies with nows. How are you continuing to develop the, the science and the rigor of those clinical trials? Do you have uh, specific methodologies you're trying out or anything in the pipeline? Right. So all of our studies, at least in terms of the adults and in terms of babies suffering from nows, are randomized control trials. Mm. It's the gold standard, and primarily because we are looking specifically for nows to get that product to market, get it in the hands of neonatologists, in the hands of the NICU nurses, allow this to be another tool in the toolbox for them to treat their patients. Sure. Uh, and so for nows, we did receive also an NIH-funded study uh, it's a two-year trial that we'll be starting, uh, in, I think it's the first part of 2022. You know, there's actually a specific clinical trial that I want to highlight here with you today. Spark recently announced a new clinical trial to address long-term addiction using TAN therapy, which we've been talking about, right? And this is jointly managed with the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation, as well as Gadenzia Clinics. Is that pronounced correctly? Mm, Gadenzia. Gadenzia, excuse me, Gadenzia Clinics. Now, both of these are leaders in behavioral health and addiction treatment. And the trial has almost $3 million behind it from the National Institutes for Health Initiatives and a grant you received from them, which is very exciting. So, can you tap into that research for our audience? What is it that you're actually testing? And how do you hope that this will continue to inform how clinicians can bring TAN therapy into their larger ecosystem of treatment tools? Right, yeah, this is a really exciting study for us because it's the first study that we're aware of that has actually three approved or three FDA-approved treatment options three, okay. that are all non-opioid based. Oh, wow. 
right? Great. And so the three are Lucimira. Uh, and so Lucimira is a non-opioid FDA-approved medication for acute detoxification. Okay. And then the other medication that we're using is, is Vivitrol, which I've already explained yeah. uh, earlier. And then our therapy, which is neurostimulation, non-opioid. Uh, so as patients uh, start this trial, they will be enrolled. It's a randomized controlled trial. They'll be enrolled into the trial. And they'll use our device with Lucimira through the seven days of detox. And then as they move on to phase two, they will go on the Vivitrol if they, if they agree to. Sure. And then we'll have our device as well with Vivitrol to, to determine if we can prove relapse rates during a 90-day phase. Noted. How do you hope that this can help inform some new strategies from the Spark Biomedical team? Is there anything that uh, your team is hoping to take away from this to then inform future developments to your tan therapy solutions? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, our indication right now currently with the Sparrow device uh, for tan therapy is essentially to help mitigate withdrawal, right. right? With this clinical trial, it'll allow for not only our device to expand its indications for use and to relapse prevention, but also it will give physicians, again, another opportunity to help their patients that we, and we have to be very clear, after detox, patients are extremely, they call it opioid naivety. So their chances of relapse and overdose go up tremendously right after detox. Right. So they're in a very vulnerable state. So being able to control a patient in terms of their symptoms, their cravings, their depression, their PTSD, and helping to suppress them that and keep it under control yeah. is crucial for them to have a successful addiction treatment down the road. Definitely. Definitely. It's about building that reactivity, but proactivity too. It's something I said in the last episode too, but something that I think really works well for Spark is the fact that you've centered that in your treatment, in your development, and in the ethos of the whole company is how can we not only address the most acute aspects of withdrawals today, mm -hmm. but also develop a solution that can be part of a long-term treatment option of a long-term uh, addiction therapy strategy that takes into account the potential for relapse, the long-term effects that your body's still going to have to take into uh, account as it maneuvers right. a future post-withdrawal and post-addiction. So with all of that in mind, let's start to wrap up the conversation then by talking about how we can actually start to put this to good use. So we mentioned this is just part of a larger ecosystem of uh, treatment tools, but from what I've heard from you, it sounds like opioid-based treatments and pills really are still the core foundation of treatment today, right? So would you say that clinicians at large are ready to take this on, right, as something that is neurostimulation-based? Or is there a layer of education that's still needed to bring this to industry at scale? What are your thoughts there, and what role is Spark playing in filling that education gap, if there is one? Definitely. There's, there, there's still a lot of education that needs to be done on our part, and we take that very seriously. You know, there are physicians to date that this is just a no-brainer for them. Sure. You, you show them our product, they see the, the unmet need, and they're like, I'm oh, in, I want to use it, Love right? It. There are other physicians that just need to be, um, they need more data, which is what we're trying to do. Bigger clinical trials, more data, more support, more peer-to-peers to get them to be believers in this type of technology. And sometimes they just have to see it to believe it. Uh, so yes, that's definitely education plays a huge role. 
Also, one of our biggest barriers into getting the hands of not only physicians and their patients yeah. is the cost, right? Uh, this technology is it's not expensive. However, it is not also reimbursed. So that's something that we are working on very hard to be able to get this reimbursed through private insurance and hopefully at the federal level through CMS, which will then eventually be able to uh, allow patients to get this uh, technology much more easily and, and more reliably. Do you feel that there's like a second layer of uh, domino affecting education that you have to consider too, which is not only educating uh, the clinician and the physicians on how to use it, but then also helping them understand how to then educate their patients on proper use. Does Spark take on any of that responsibility as well to kind of like imagine the concentric circles of education that come from this? A hundred percent. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, we have a theme at our company. We've stolen from other companies, the easy button. Yeah. Right. right? You don't want a technology to be hard because uh, you're just, it just won't be adopted. So we, we do everything we possibly can. We listen to our patients. We listen to our physicians. We take that feedback very seriously. We modify our products mm. uh, to, to meet those standards and just to make it easy. We want this to be as easy as taking a pill. Yeah. And it sounds like it's getting to that point. And it sounds like, I mean, if anything, the experience is going to be potentially better than taking a pill. I guess just to start to wrap up as well, what have you heard from patients that you've worked with or you know, through the grapevine from clinicians, what they've heard from patients on their experience using the Sparrow device? Is it, is, like, do they compare it to other treatment methods? Is it that clear of an improvement or difference for them? What have you heard? We've heard great experiences from our patients and clinicians. You know, in terms of withdrawal mitigation, it's fast. It's a very fast effect. Within right. one hour, you're, you're, most of our patients actually fall asleep. It's incredible. <laughs> Love that. They're in a fetal position, and then, and then 30 to 60 minutes later, they're falling asleep in the chair, and they're relaxed, and they're not experiencing withdrawal. And our physicians are, are echoing the same sentiment. So it's, it's, a, it's incredible to see how neurostimulation has another branch of uh, treatment that it can provide patients. Definitely. And I'm very excited to see how your clinical trial you're in the middle of with the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation and just any future research you're going to do, how that continues to improve that quality, speed, and comfort behind your device. Uh, it sounds like you're really making strides already. So it's always a pleasure getting to tap into that. Yeah. Last main point then, is there one action that you want clinicians out there to take away from today's episode? Right? If they really had to internalize all of this new knowledge or refresher and put it to action, what would that be and why? Yeah, it's like, just as I said earlier, physicians love tools, yes. right? This is just another tool that's a non-opioid, it's non-invasive, it's non-pharmacological, yeah. that's safe and effective for their patients, and they should just give it a try and see how it works. Love it. Love it. And if anything, the results will speak for themselves. Absolutely. Right? Love yeah. it. All right. Thank you so much for your time today. It's really been a pleasure getting to tap into the science behind Spark Biomedical and add another layer, uh, you know, building off of our last episode to more clearly understand the ethos of the company, how you view the science playing into that larger role of your company. And again, why this neurostimulation treatment, why tan therapy 
is going to be an essential part of the tool belt moving forward. So thank you again, again, for our audience. We've been chatting with Dr. Naveed Kadaparist. He's one of three co-founders and the chief science officer at Spark Biomedical. And uh, Dr. Naveed, yes, if folks want to find out more about some of your work, they want to tap into your thought leadership, maybe just get in touch. How can they do so? They can definitely find me on the website, and then they can track uh, some of our work that's being done at the NIH. Very good. All right, Dr. Naveed Kadaparist, thank you again. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Vital Spark, a Spark Biomedical podcast. If you like what you heard and saw today and you want to tap into some previous episodes or make sure you don't miss out on future conversations as we continue to solve this crisis of addiction and more specifically opioid addiction in the world, make sure that you are subscribing to our podcast at uh, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And make sure you're heading to our website, sparkbiomedical.com. Again, sparkbiomedical.com. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Vital Spark.